welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Welcome to the Madden America podcast. I'm Akansha Vaswani, and I am a fifth-year doctoral student at UMass Boston. And today, I'm going to be speaking with Jennifer Freeman, who is a marriage and family therapist and also an expressive arts therapist. She has been engaged in therapeutic conversations, international community work, teaching, and professional writing for the past 30 years based on narrative approaches. Uh, But today, actually, she's going to speak to us about uh, some of her thinking and research on responses to climate change. And we're very happy to have her here today. Welcome to the Madden America podcast, Jenny. Thank you, Akansha. I'm delighted to be here. And thank you so much for taking Mm -hmm. this on and for your interest and concern in this. So to begin with, you know, I'm wondering why were you particularly concerned about this area of climate change? Can you tell us a little bit about your personal history and how it got you to explore this topic? So why was I particularly concerned about this? Well, I would say our roots as uh, therapists or healers Uh, don't start with our training in graduate schools or programs. Um, I trace this interest back to my family's 75-year-old adoptive relationship um, with the kinship groups in a beautiful Samoan village called Sa'anapu in uh, the island of Upolu. Uh, I carry a title to this day from there, Afenga Itinoti. I was incredibly fortunate to come of age living within this extended family um, and we were immersed in a beautiful, uh, what I would call, eco-sourced life. We bathed in springs, we lit oil lamps at night, we walked everywhere, we fished on a healthy reef and I had the sense, I developed a sense of people belonging to and with the land and over the decades I've witnessed that going from a healthy, vibrant, connected ecological field to the kind of mess of plastics and a deterioration of reefs, um, even though the village life is still wonderfully intact in many other ways. and But the village has also had to move inland from fear of increased tsunami risk. So Coming back from Samoa, I had a difficult and fiery adaptation to life there. Coming in with fresh eyes, I think, um, I experienced a lot of pain and grief and anger, as a lot of young people do, when I learned about the clear-cutting of virgin rainforests and uranium mining on sacred tribal lands in Australia, smokestacks, and seeing the mistreatment of animals and oceans. So... I think I plunged into activism, particularly in the Aboriginal land rights movements, as well as anti-apartheid. And I learned about environmental dystopia, staying with a Australian, I mean, Australian Aboriginal family in a very impoverished area. Um, I want to note that many Indigenous people, African Americans and other colonized people were forced into dystopian conditions a long time ago. So when I was 17 in the 1970s, you could have called me mad in Australia uh, for several reasons. I read the Club of Rome's treatise, The Limits to Growth, and that really opened my eyes. Um, Around that time, I had a clear waking vision of the seas rising full of plastic and coastal cities being inundated. I began to sound the alarm about these things 
like Greta Thunberg, but people thought I was just melodramatic. I was aware, you know, that how humans were soiling and shredding the nest was just not going to pan out. But the effects would have to become more immediate before people would respond en masse as they are now, you know, with the, like with the climate strikes. There's a sign posted in a local bookstore here that says the apocalyptic fiction section has been moved to current affairs. <laughs> and that feels a bit like my life. My parents um, had also lived and researched with the Ibandayak people in Sarawak, um, which is the Malaysian part of Borneo. And I traveled that region in my 1920s and met a young man with an Iban tattoo. <clears throat> so we teamed up and made a trip uh, shooting the rapids way up the Rejang River to stay in a longhouse, which happened to be the very same as the one my parents had lived in in the 40s. Um, the old woman approached me and cried and said, Monica, Monica, which was my mother's name. So I fell in love with this beautiful, beautiful area. And 80% of the jungles of Borneo have already been plundered. I was there, you know, in the 1970s, and it was hot. It's 10 degrees hotter now. Later on in my life, I had the joy of diving the Great Barrier Reef. So, you know, Akancha, I had the stunning realization some years ago that I am of the generation to witness this tremendous degradation in the pristine environments I've been in love with. The village equatorial rainforest of Sarawak and Great Barrier Reef and my beloved island of Opolu. In my 30s as a psychotherapist and community worker, I became involved with narrative therapy and then worked with the Just Therapy team in New Zealand, um, including engaging in uh, disaster relief, which was indigenously led. And this really influenced my thinking about collective identities and the centrality of social justice and therapy, which I think is now an interweave with environmental justice. My Samoan and Maori friends were um, working on global warming threats in the South Pacific for, you know, decades already, I'd say. And in my work since the documentary on Inconvenient Truth came out, I've been wrestling with how to incorporate environmental justice as the wide context of human health and about the intersectionality of social justice. I want to say too, that I'm primarily informed and inspired by being in nature, by listening to the collective pathfinding ways of bees, by listening to trees in the forest and communities of birds and wild animals. I feel like individual entitlement is just robbing our earth, and I am reaching for a joy-filled and respectful ways of being um, with all our relations. Mm -hmm. So there's influence from a lot of different areas of your own life. I guess it um, uh, makes me think about, you know, how you've oriented yourself as a, as a professional. Yeah. Um, you know, why do you think we should care about climate change in the arena of mental health based on your experiences uh, as a therapist? What extent of a peril are we talking about here? Well, you know, you and I are talking right around the time of the international climate strike. And um, I'm really witnessing that at this time, the youth are, are rising to implore adults you know, to wake up and uh, wake up from the business as usual slumber and get on this. Um, the Extinction Rebellion movement is growing, uh, the Sunrise movement. There are many movements globally and internationally. And I think the question, Akancha, is 
you know, perhaps how can we not care about the well-being of those we serve, given that, you know, we face global peril. Um, and we also face, you know, the possibility of a great breakthrough, uh, a turning towards global environmental and social justice and restoration. Um, in a sense, you could say that this is necessary, you know, this crisis or peril is necessary because, you know, the way that humans have been living on the earth since the Industrial Revolution uh, has caused tremendous suffering, you know, to the earth, to the land, to the peoples of the land, to the animals, plants, and to the, you know, beings of the sea. Um, and and the, the degree of uh, cruelty coming from that is just untenable. Mm -hmm. um, so in a certain way, you know, this is an extraordinary opportunity to be shaken out of, you know, our complacency and to respond from love and care. And I'd say why we should care, you know, in terms of mental health is that anyone who's receiving factual news is aware of mm -hmm. melting ice and rising seas and killer heat waves and massive storms, which are predicted to increase, you know, fires. And I would argue that, you know, anyone who's at all informed has to be feeling it on some level, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, that we're all actually in relationship to this. And, you know, the American Psychological Association has for some time been, predict been predicting wide impacts on mental health. Mm -hmm. um, there have been studies on that. Um, I could go into that later if you want. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, how can we not be affected is the question. So. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's been one of those areas that we just haven't raised in uh, clinical settings so much, or what you would call clinical settings. Um, but it's coming up increasingly, and it's going to, I just think that's going to ramp up. You know, I, at the moment, I think grade school children are likely to be hearing about the Amazon burning. Mm -hmm. You know, the, these are the lungs of the earth, and they're being set on fire for profit. And are on, you know, could disappear. So there are bound to be psychological effects from growing instability in local and global environments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so you know, what's it like to be um, to let in and inform your children or grandchildren that 200 species a day are going extinct, mm -hmm. or that iconic species like you know whales and pandas and dolphins and tigers and elephants, you know, the animals that kids just love, uh, are at great risk. You know, mm -hmm. will they um, become the dinosaurs of our future, you know, possibly along with us? Mm -hmm. So, you know, as I said, you know, the extractive economies that we live in that treat people and nature as just mere resources to be used uh, are, are disconnected, so disconnected as to be ecocidal and ecomotorous. Mm. And I think many people who have a harder feeling that, and, you know, this is a taste of the peril we face if the dominant paradigm really holds sway here and keeps us down and passive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I just want to name that, you know, the um, my friend, the science journalist, Cat um, Snow, and I call this Earth's environmental crisis rather than simply climate change, mm. you know. So I... Caring about this in the arena of mental health, you know, what's it like for all people of young people, particularly, to be wondering about the point of their school certificates, the point of being in school, the point of their degrees, 
you know, mm. wondering about the security of their future futures and whether to even have kids, you know. So I, I, I'm finding that coming up very regularly in my practice whenever I afford an opportunity for that. Mm-hmm. And I think as uh, practitioners, uh, anybody involved with mental health has a primary ethical responsibility to break out of our usual models and to engage um, about what we and our clients are living through, you know, to be proactive and inspired rather than just passive, passively diagnosing and treating symptomatic effects like eco-anxiety or depression. Mm-hmm. So I just want to raise that, you know, there, there's an increased um, risk of disasters uh, coming up, you know, and that I have some experience in that area. So that's an area that's something to care about and for, you know, mental health professionals to be uh, concerned with and orienting towards. And um, there are, you know, many intersectional um, things to be aware of there, social justice issues that come up in relation to that. So, you know, I've responded and commented in the media on, for example, the Northern California fires, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've been touched a little bit by that and that a friend of mine who's actually a narrative um, policeman um, and, and worker uh, got a call from his daughter who had just narrowly avoided um, you know, being just narrowly escaped this terrible fire in the town of Paradise, you know, which destroyed their livelihoods, their communities, the schools, mm. you know, their toys, their trikes, everything. Um, they just drove out of there with their lives. And, you know, as I've been commenting on that, I um, have realized in, you know, collaboration with some other narrative therapists that. You know, of course, the traumatic impact of those fires is affected by the resources that people have to recover with, mm-hmm. you know, so that people who are able to rebuild with insurance money um, are, you know, still dealing with trauma. Um, but the impact would be rather different than, you know, that on local work- workers. Um, and there's a program in, you know, um, there's a master's in sustainability program in Sweden that's um, trying to address disaster relief from from a social justice and narrative point of view that is um, attuned and sensitive to um, also, you know, the local cultures rather than sweeping in with our westernised, you know, dominant culture view and colonising mental health in disaster relief, you know, that it's really important to... Um, to if we're going to offer psychosocial disaster relief to respond appropriately and sensitively with you know questions and curiosity and then to see how we can be of service. Um, and I I had did have the experience of working with an indigenous-led psychosocial team in uh, Samoa uh, in response to a, a tsunami there, which was not climate caused, but it's still very relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, so that the the model is is really locally led and locally driven. You know, mm-hmm. um, so that's a special area. We could figure out what to what to do with that there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a very important reason to care now is that we are working with you know people, and that if we break out of the business as usual model and 
engage ourselves and other people, we actually might be able to make a difference here in how this plays out, which will affect, you know, mental health um, in the circle, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we how this plays out is still somewhat up to conscious choices that we make now. There are many people saying that. Mm-hmm. And it's really easy to avoid raising this in mental health care and understandable to want to push it away. But I really think that it's important, you know, the dominant story of doom and gloom, just invite helplessness, you know, I'm too small to matter. And mm-hmm. staying passive and isolated as we face this together is not great for mental health. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. We we all have spheres of influence and um you know providers and consumers are uh, consumers are living together in a global unfolding that's quite unique in history. Mm-hmm. You know as you're calling upon us to kind of examine this from a, a social justice perspective and um looking at different ways we can respond responsibly as mental health professionals. I'm also wondering about what you've witnessed in your own practice uh, on your clients' mental health, what impacts of climate change have you witnessed? Yeah, well, you know, I think there's an important point to uh, hear, which is that I have witnessed it through raising it. You know, I'd say that there's a a sharp increase, and many clinicians would agree that there's a very sharp increase in um, depression and anxiety, especially among youth. and and even children, you know, children are raising the question with their parents, you know, what is climate change? What does it mean? What does it mean about my future? And parents are um, a bit baffled about what to say to the kids. I'm trying to work on that problem and I'll let you know when I've figured that. <laughs> you know, that's a collaboration I'm in with uh, parents, I would say, you know, how to, what to say to the kids. Um, I'm particularly concerned about young people whose future this really is. And um, so I'd say that I re- because I think that everybody has to be in relationship to this if they're getting factual information or news, um, it's going to be having an impact, right? So now that I'm aware of it, because I think previously it was in, more invisible to me, but as I'm more aware of that people are likely to be in relationship to these times, these wild mythic times, um, when I see teens uh, experiencing anxiety or depression or suicidality or despair or hopelessness, I'll have the you know the I'll, I'll look at that from the lens or listen through the you know lens of uh i wonder if this could have anything to do with the global situation mm. right so um and if i raise that things happen like a mother of three grown daughter you know da- daughters say to me well i see that my kids don't feel that they have a future and i feel terrible about that you know um, young people that I meet with are qualifying their plans with, well, you know, like, what's the point of this degree? Or, you know, uh, my future, I don't know, you know, is there a future? Mm. And how stunning is that? Young adults are questioning very regularly, this comes up in the literature a lot, whether to have children. Mm-hmm. So people are so used to thinking of problems as personal that they might not situate anxiety or sadness in these wider issues themselves. 
someone might think that they have a condition called depression when it's really profound sadness about the loss of an animal species or factory farming. And as soon as people have an opportunity to name that, they'll just make that connection very quickly. Or they are making it inside but just haven't thought to connect the dots in a mental health setting, so to speak, you know. Mm -hmm. So a teenager might feel isolated in his terrible worry about his future and appear to his teachers and parents like he's got an anxiety disorder, you know. Um, the Bureau of Linguistic Reality, you know, mm -hmm. which is an artistic project, came up with a the term shadow time. They're trying to come up with terminology to help us uh, name what's going on, and they came up with this term shadow time, which mm -hmm. I appreciate. I think it's relevant here because it's a kind of uh, dual stressful awareness, you know, that while you butter your coffee or wait for the bus, or, you know, the Arctic is burning. Mm. Yeah. Um, does this create an ongoing unease? You know, do you, and if you're a young person and you watch an inconvenient truth or any number of, you know, documentaries, um, do you bring up the climate emergency at a party and risk being a Debbie Downer, mm -hmm. you know, being too serious? And, you know, or do you suck it up and then feel isolated but guilty mm -hmm. and then feel like something's the matter with you for being so serious? You know, does this appear to us as depression? Does a person who's, you know, experiencing grief look like they're depressed? So, you know, as I gently inquire, would you be interested in going into your relationship with um, these environmental challenges or changes that we're undergoing? You know, could it possibly relate to your suffering? Might it relate to your suffering in any way? Most people are immediately saying, oh, yes, I'm yes, I'm sure. Now let me think about it. And Everyone I've worked this up with has thanked me profusely and continues to delve into this with me mm -hmm. um, and find inspiration. I'm not saying that every session, every meeting is you know, taken up with this, but increasingly meetings are you know, taken up with this. And mm -hmm. I think I, I want to challenge our field to say that you know, even if we do identify crisis-related problems, are we going to go along you know, collecting fees in our practices or a, our agency you know, with individualizing a collective global problem that we're dealing with, with diagnoses like climate anxiety disorder or eco-anxiety or eco-depression or pre-climate mm -hmm. disaster disorder or post-climate disaster disorder where you realize that, you know, humans were involved in the in fire. You know, humans partly caused the fire that you you recovering from now, you know. Do we treat things on an individual basis or do we help people to feel sane in an insane ecocidal world and then come into community and be proactive, mm -hmm. you know? And to me that the, the point about becoming proactive is really essential because, you know, it could be the most exciting time ever um, if we come into an alive and inspired relationship with these wild and mystic times, you know, instead mm -hmm. of letting our spirits sink and give up. Mm -hmm. um, I think um, that would be, you know, to come into an inspired relationship is good for mental health and good for these uh, kind of conditions that we might term eco-anxiety or, you know, eco-depression, eco-grief. Mm -hmm. Those are appropriate feelings in a sense, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so activism is a fantastic antidote to eco-anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. And... You know, in times of instability lie the most opportunities. So 
to be able to hold that possibility with clients is a you know kind of a daring thing, but it's just fantastic to mm-hmm. engage people in that way. Right. Um, it sounds like you know you um, you've figured out and you're still figuring out many ways to respond to the things clients are bringing you instead of individualizing it as some kind of internal problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it would be interesting to hear from you why you think we haven't responded to this problem earlier mm-hmm. as, as a species, as mental health professionals. Well, I, talking about that Bureau of Linguistic Reality, they coined the term slowpocalypse and also the term unweepocalypse. Don't you love it? It's like, mm-hmm. it, it makes sense, you know, that uh, it's so because evolutionary speaking, our brains are designed to respond to more immediate threats like flash floods and fires and so on. And uh, when danger passes, we tend to just sort of settle back into grazing mode or into our uh, social media mode, Instagram mode, right, and distract ourselves again. So for many of us so far, you know, Earth's environmental crisis has not been experienced near, as we say in narrative therapy. Mm -hmm. And we can easily keep threats at bay by saying, oh, well, it happened to that, you know, the hurricane happened to those poor people ever in the Bahamas, we might feel compassion, but it's still at a distance, you know, not near me and not near the people I meet with. Also, for many of us, it's kind of in the future, you know, it's theoretical, um, it's abstract. And so it's kind of, we can push it off by thinking, well, it hasn't happened yet. I don't have to respond yet, you know. And that's if you're privileged, right? Because the impacts, of course, the greater impacts are being felt on you know, by indigenous people in the Amazon or in the, you know, Pacific Islands or one of the communities living on melting ice or communities like Flint, Michigan, you know, who are already um, dealing with these things. Um, Ironically, you know, I've found out or heard that some of the wealthy tech people in Silicon Valley are already planning for bunkers in New Zealand. But, um, you know, I think because the information is can be so overwhelming, it's very easy to to uh, just go on with business as usual with mm-hmm. the with the old paradigm, and um, we can get stuck between a rock and a hard place. There, the rock being you know avoidance and denial and distraction. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so easy these days, right? And the hard place being a kind of abject fear or despair or helplessness, and we find mm-hmm. ourselves stuck on one side or the other or swinging between those poles, you know. Um, so I think we need to find ways to make this experience closer, you know, kind of near and dear so as to step up with love and care to really realize, you know, this is one planet. We have one Earth and and it's interconnected. We are all interconnected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so that's interesting to think about in light of you know how we um, or, or how the mental health field often thinks about uh, problems as being located within people. Mm-hmm. So how do you think the psychology of individualism contributes to this feeling of being in a rock or a hard place? Right, these feelings of isolation, denial, or fear, or even shame related to climate change. It's a great question. Akancha, you know, I think people are, you know, perversely encouraged to internalize the causes of suffering in our culture. Um, Mental health, uh, traditional mental health practices engage in that, you know, and if you think that it's part of a problematic identity, 
and you receive a pathologizing diagnosis for it, you're more likely to feel isolated and shamed. So, you know, let's say you're a teenager aware of these, you know, terrible problems that we're facing in this world and you don't don't yet feel inspired by anything and you receive a diagnosis of you know, depression and anxiety and you're medicated for it, you're, you know, you are more likely to feel isolated and even ashamed. You'll be very confused about what's what's the matter with you, right? Mm-hmm. Even though your, your heart is alive and awake and caring, but if nobody's receiving that and nobody's affirming that, it's going to make, and if you don't feel like you're part of a community, it's going to make a really big difference. So a shame reaction, you know, can cause a protective part of you to numb it out with drugs or alcohol or even shopping, You know, therapists can so easily miss these contextual stressors and it's so helpful to name them. So in this case, you know, identifying oppressive forces like the disconnect or or even naming the extractive colonization can help make sense of certain kinds of grief and anxiety and anger or protest, feelings of hopelessness or helplessness. Mm -hmm. Um, But as those get named and, you know, kind of turn into... Uh, an active hope, you know, mobilization, as Joanna Macy um, terms it. Um, so, yeah, all it, everything can be pathologized, right? I, I dare say that the experiences that young people are having and many people are having make sense in a society that turns a blind eye to the tremendous stresses that nature, our home, is under. And when you name these things, you come out of isolation into community. You know, you're less likely to think it's your issues, there's something wrong with you, but realize you're having a same response to a crazy setup mm-hmm. that you're inadvertently participating in and your family's inadvertently participating in, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And the psychology of individualism also makes a therapist blind. You know, many global areas of, ex- have been, of experience have been excluded from traditional psychiatry and therapy. You know, think about even women in Victorian times given the diagnosis of hysteria for really a social problem of emotional constriction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I was younger, Akancha, mm-hmm. um, I knew a man who was a peer of mine who had heard about the threats to whales, even at that time. And he expressed this concern to a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And the psychiatrist diagnosed him with a delusional disorder. Mm-hmm and medicated him um, because the psychiatrist knew nothing of whales. He wasn't informed in that, you know. Turns out the guy was quite tuned in, actually, and quite upset about it, and rightfully so, right? Um, And in, you know, narrative and postmodern practices, the effects of oppression in socioeconomics and race and culture and sexual preference and gender are basic to our our understanding of suffering. Mm -hmm. And you know, now humans' unhealthy relationship to their environment is a topic that's been invisible, largely. And it's time for us to bring it forward. You know, people like Joanna Macy, I've been talking about this for a long time, but in mainstream practice, you know, outside of maybe ecotherapists, it's been a bit invisible. And so, you know, it's time for us to bring it forward as we have raised those other kinds of issues and contextualizing suffering. Mm-hmm. And to help, you know, understand our youth who've in, inherited this, you know, disaster made scenario and also mm-hmm. to help kind of, you know, be with an older generation that's been immobilized. Yeah. So, you know. So, you know, Jenny, as you've been talking about kind of inviting people to step out into community, um, recognizing their anxiety or depression to be linked to something, you know, 
bigger uh, later stage. Um, how do you think calling upon us to have a social response uh, would lead to better mental health? This piece about sleeping out of the community and into re- into relationship with things you care about. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, individually as we're isolated in the ways that we've been talking about that, you know, we can, we've been participating in the ecocidal and eco-murderous culture, you know, it, through the extractive and colonizing, lim- you know, limitless growth economies, you know, um, you know, that isolation is a crony to depression and despair and anxiety and realizing that things need to change you know, we move from the individual self in relating to earth changes into collective levels of awareness and response. So that's a very exciting development, you know, when you realize that you're not just struggling alone with your feelings, you're actually part of something so much bigger than you are. You know, it's, it's, an, it's immense. You know, you, people come into a kind of collective sense of self, um, then, you know, rest into the strength of community and even an awareness of global response responsivity right so i really love paul hawkins book called blessed unrest where he names you know almost countless people and organizations working for social justice and environmental justice as the world's largest movement which he likens to an immune system of gaia and um feeling the cumulative practice of people's gratitude and love for the earth um, and for justice are antidotes to helplessness and despair. Um, you know, as I learned in Samoa, in a smoothly functioning community, many hands make lighter work. And if you feel like it's not just up to you to save the world, you know, but you can be in- inspired, you can be invited in, you know, but through inspiration, um, you know, you can find out yourself how to connect in with your rural or your urban tribes on issues that you care about, you know. Feel yourself in connection with the land, you know, with the animals and plants and birds and minerals, as eco-psychologists say, or as my friend and colleague Marcy Rivas names, you know, come back into relationship with all our relations, Mm. you know, into a loving, respectful relationship. And that in itself is healing, you know. We, we are as one in the sky and ecosystem, you know, that's laid out eloquently in this be- beautiful book called Animate Earth that's really about, you know, Gaian, the Gaian climate. But, but I, think it's, I think we're disconnected from that. So coming into a, um, a collective awareness and being inspired and mobilizing collectively as the youth are doing is the healing you know, Mm -hmm. for this isolation and disconnect. Mm -hmm. So you're, you know, knowing that you're part of an immense community of caring, lit up people is fantastic, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, even though you think globally, you can act locally. So um, this this has been a a fascinating conversation. It has given me a lot of thinking as in my own work as a mental health professional. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, you know, as we kind of uh, come to a close, I'm, wondering about your identity as a narrative therapist and mm. how you use ideas and principles from narrative therapy to address uh, mental health related to um, this crisis. Using the guiding lights of narrative therapy has been really helpful in my relationship with Earth's environmental crisis, you know, for me to navigate it and to reach beyond treating eco-anxiety and depression as conditions 
finding ways to name what people are up against and dealing with. So to resist taking global problems personally, as we've um, been talking about, it's helpful to name or externalize them. You know, if you locate yourself as being in relationship to a problem, rather than internalizing and being it, then you have agency and choice, and that changes things. So, for example, our colleague in Japan, Sumie Ishikawa, names machinalization as a problem generated by the dominant system. And I like to name the giant disconnect from nature, which allows for this extraction and plunder and machinalization of people and animals uh, that causes us all so much suffering now. I think that recognizing the effects of problems helps us feel through them and then invites protest and inspires us to reclaim our joy and creativity. You know, in, in narrative therapy, we say that the stories we tell ourselves and others not only reflect experience, you know, describe it, but are performative. That is, they shape the future, they shape what we live into. A person who's taking in the science predictions on climate change and extinctions can easily be captured by a problem-saturated doomsday story of global collapse or, you know, the end of days. So how we hold this really matters, what we live into, how we live into this. Um, environmentalist Paul Hawkins, who I mentioned, and others are saying that humanity does already have the means to live intelligently and sustainably on Earth, but what we lack is intention and purpose and leadership, or I'd say inspiration. In other words, you know, how about that? It's actually a psychosocial issue, and I think narrative therapy has a lot to offer. So consider this, if you're upset about the extinction of a particular species, like say a dolphin species, may you be having an emotional but sane response to an insane situation. You know, the giant disconnect, the ecocidal, eco-murderous civilization. When the suffering's put in context like this, a person can bounce out of their isolation into connection with others and discover resources and the resilience to face what we're up against. I find it really helpful to distinguish between a kind of hopeless, depressed grieving and the kind of honest-to-goodness crying, you know, where you you uh, let it out and it's a caring crying that leaves you maybe tired but lighter and with some perspective. And being with other people or in community is good f- for this, so I widen my lens too outside of, you know, family or individual therapy to just collectives. I like to name too how that rock of numbness and avoidance and minimization and the more dynamic hard place where you let in that massive changes are already underway but then struggle and become overwhelmed. Both poles are immobilizing, right? And this works for the problems version of humanity, doesn't it? The dismal one. What is a preferred story to that of a lame and doomed humanity? If we think of problems as testing human metal and challenging us to find courage and creativity, then how about an inspiration response instead? Uh, Think about uh, Dr. Martin Luther King and how he lit up the civil rights movement with his love and inspiration rather than fear. What if we declare that our story is we're awake, we love our earth, We're in love with Earth. We're grateful, and we've got this, right? Here's a radical idea. As a young client said to me recently, 
um, in pondering this together. I wonder how high humanity can actually rise to this occasion. I've been exploring ideas too of imagining a love letter of gratitude from the future, from the grandchildren, and what would it say? Another idea from narrative therapy that I think is useful is that wherever there's a problem-saturated story, there have to be an exception to it. So in other words, lying right alongside the dominant story is a counter-story or what I call an emergent liberative narrative. It's always co-arising. Um, and in narrative therapy, I think what we do well is to find threads of hope and strength and possibility that are currently being overshadowed in these fearful, overwhelming situations of the dominant story, like, say, anorexia. Um, we bring these counter or liberative stories back into the light. We attend to them and try to strengthen them through the questions that we ask. So, you know, in this context, in our relationship to climate change and the crisis, what is working? What are people doing already? What sparks of inspiration lie inside a person already, you know? Are they drawn to planting trees or tending bees? And if people become aware that they're on a giant team, you know, that they're in this together, we're in this together, does that dispel the sense of helpless isolation? Um, I feel like that inspiration just needs to spread, right? Um, so I'm asking what emergent liberative stories are there now that can lead us through these wild mythic times? Some ideas that have come up, you know, both from people in my practice and in my explorations are that they're being called the great turning, uh, the great transition. I like to call it the great unfolding since it's so mysterious. And um, as I refuse to give up, um, sort of surrender my, myself to the dominant story of helplessness, I'm listening to the youth um, and I'm finding that a lot of stories are emerging from the sort of green grassroots of being in love with earth, the return to kind of animistic, eco-sourced ways of building, community, collective work, all kinds of ingenuity, which I find amazing. Um, and thinking about the problem-saturated story with the young people I work and play with, I've realized that it's really easy to uh, kind of sink into this like, oh, sorry, kids, you know, we know we're giving you all this ghastly news and information about what's happening to your world, but, you know, we're busy wringing our hands or carrying on with the trance of normal or grieving over the news, and we don't have a lot to say to offer you about inspiration, about how we can rise to the occasion and, um, you know, create generative economies and a thriving future for us all. So I'm really trying to think about what kind of story uh, adults can put together to meet these wild mythic times, you know, to help co-create with the youth. Um, so a preferred story for me is, you know, that I, I can respond. I'm able to respond to Earth's crisis and needs for justice from, you know, a place of profound gratitude and appreciation for our home here and bring forth my potential and respond with gifts and inspiration. So thinking about Reverend King's I Have a Dream as we have a dream. What is our dream? We have a dream of a world we've only glimpsed. What is that? How can we strengthen this narrative from possible into promising? Where can we attend to areas that are already promising and bring those stories into our practices, you know? Like if somebody's really worried about the bees, 
um, I can let them know about the Million Pollinator Garden Movement, which is a very exciting thing that, you know, they can go home and plant plants like I have and draw, you know, a lot of bees to their garden um, and find out other ways to support our bees collectively. Um, I find, you know, the question of what is absent but implicit helpful here. So what I find is implicit is our quantum capability, you know, collective human potential. What if we really orient towards that? How do you help the planet out to move into its evolutionary potential? You know, what lifts you? What floats your boat and sparks your imagination or your families or your communities? Has the problem tricked you into thinking that there's a shortage of ideas? Um, as Greta Thunberg says, there's something for everyone to contribute. Don't be confused by the problem and, you know, think you're too small. How could you become an inspiration in your profession? There are a jillion communities of concern, uh, like the Sierra Club to join in to support and actions to take. Just take the next step. What would your environmental identity, as Thomas Doherty puts it, uh, be? The problem story, in other words, is that you're small and helpless, so counter it, you know, do your part with your gifts and your spheres of influence, start wherever you are. Would you sink into the problem's version of you, or would you prefer to step up, and would you respond with your heart from a place of that gratitude for life? Um, and as I've said before, what would it look like for us to let go of that sense of grimness and pressure and to create a counter tsunami of love for our planet, our exquisite earth. These are some interesting ideas from Nardotherapy, Jenny. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how it actually might look in your practice? Well, I learned how to situate problems in terms of wider oppressions, and I'm trying to go beyond uh, just treating internalized effects to addressing causes you know, stepping out of the box of uh, business-as-usual practices and uh, raising it, uh, the question of whether people are ready to delve into their relationship with Earth's environmental crisis. Um, I'm, if people are, then uh, we're joining together in looking at how the ecocidal system affects us all. And, um, and then I'm paying attention to narratives of inspired response, I'd say. Um, I developed a, a list of questions that I've used for some time, which was recently refined uh, with the help of David Epstein. Um, and also, I like to interweave expressive arts and body-based therapies with narrative therapy because it feels really important to make room for uh, our heart's pain for the world uh, and find ways to express our grief and our fear and move through our sadness and anger uh, to express protest. I'm exploring ceremonial approaches uh, for this, uh, group approaches and even ceremonial approaches in my practice where people might engage in, you know, dancing or poetry or songwriting to um, explore their relationship with this. People might do that inside the office or um, as play work rather than homework and bring it back in and work with that. Um, 
an African-American elder that I work with expresses herself so beautifully in uh, song and dance in these ways. It's very moving to me. Um, and then parents are speaking with me um, to try to figure out how to go beyond just trying to expl explain the mess we're in to their kids um, and sharing inspired responses like, hey, what is our family doing to tackle this? Should we give holiday gifts to the Ocean Conservatory for turtles or adopt a polar bear? Um, let's ride our bikes. We can visit local farms and markets. We can eat plant-based diets. We can learn how to cook those together. We're responders. You know, we have that environmental identity together. Uh, activism can be a burnout. Um, it's important to name, and it's hard, too, to stay awake to all the injustice and destruction that's happening in our world. Since I meet with diverse clients, I know I can't assume what's best for another in terms of uh, nourishment. So I'm asking about cultural sources of resilience and community nourishment, uh, like singing or dance or prayer, um, storytelling and forms like that. I really saw and realized and heard that it's primary to orient to a person's unique gifts and sources of inspiration to their local knowledge, you might say rather than to expert knowledge about this. This is a, a great unfolding, and we're all in, to, in it together. There are no experts. This is a great equalizer to be in a practice with people who are exploring this together as you know, a unique challenge, um, and to, for them to find their own local knowledge. What spheres of influence does a person have and how can these be engaged like I think about that science teacher I mentioned earlier who is currently deciding not only to show the science of climate change uh, with a video while he stands up the back and tears up to think about his class being engaged with this but to move forward out of the business as usual practice and engage his uh, high school class in local solutions in their neighborhoods, you know? Could they start with carpooling? Um, could he create a final project uh, where they consider how to address these? So that's his sphere of influence, and he's very excited to be engaged in that. This week, when I heard from his wife that a man had decided to switch off the news, which was driving her nuts... You know, I asked her, was he sliding from the hard place back to the rock? I'd used that externalization with her. She said, yes, I think so. Both of them are so hard. And I said, well, are there any kinds of solutions that might inspire him? Um, so this is going out beyond just working with an individual into her immediate sphere of influence that she's concerned about. I asked her what kind of stories might uplift him um, rather than turning to the problem-saturated news um, and she said, well, he might appreciate some alternatives. So I gave her links to share with him for Project Drawdown, which has lots for a household and community to get involved with. And, you know, we talked about how this could counter the family's sense of helplessness, uh, particularly his, which affects her. Um, so that's unfolding uh, as we speak. So... Also, you know, narrative therapy extended the idea of the container of therapy to include joining in communities of concern like the Temper Tamers Club and the Anti-Anorexia, Anti-Bulimia League. So I'm thinking about what kind of communities of concern a person might feel at home within 
and how to link people up, you know. I haven't started anything yet like that, but I, I know that, you know, everyone dealing with climate change and the sixth great extinction make up a global community of concern, which is really good to know about. And you might say it has local chapters like the Sierra Club or, you know, um, activism circles in Pulau, you know, and so on. Um, so my challenge is I ask myself every week, how can I... Uh, go out past where the buses don't run and even the satellites don't run to move through all of this in this community and be part of the evolution that is necessary for us to survive and thrive. Yeah, and make me think of what, what actions are we encouraged to take from that place of, of knowing that we are in relationship with um, the earth or something we care about. Mm-hmm. Absolutely wonderful and much, much food for thought, Jenny. Um, thank you so much for speaking with us. And any any final thoughts? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, thinking about the um, as as I work with people that you know not only what is the inspiration, but that if we're in an ecocidal, eco-murderous, um, you know, kind of extractive economy, you know, that encourages us to machinalize. What is counter to that? What's the counter to that in in you know each individual? So I've named that you know with Dean Lobovitz as being eco sourced, and um, so I'm bringing that into practice, which I think is really important because when we think about kind of um, when if you're down about this uh, or if you're engaged in a lot of activism, which can be a burnout, you know what really nourishes you and what how might you turn to that wholeheartedly, you know? Is that Mm. a walk in the woods? Mm. Is that, you know, experiencing the miraculous nature of water, you know, with a swim or, you know, forest bathing or, you know, climbing a tree or or lying down and contemplating a bird or a cloud until your mind clears again and you feel resourced, you know, and can be creative. So I did want to tell you one story. Mm-hmm. about this young woman. This is about seven or eight years ago. Um, I started seeing a woman who was um, suffering from uh, anorexia nervosa at the time and also became acutely suicidal. Mm-hmm. And I spent, you know, many months just struggling to, you know, help fight for her life and keep her alive in and out of hospitals and mm-hmm. really difficult. And one day it occurred to me to ask her, you know, as well as all the difficulties that you're facing in your life in this culture, you know, does your despair, the depth of your despair, have anything to do with, you know, wider environmental issues? And she just burst into tears and she said, no one's talked to me about this, but what I'm really despairing about is that, you know, I'm aware of factory farming and I can't stand to live in a world where animals are treated like that, Mm. you know, and I teared up it myself just, hearing her the degree of her heart for this and I said with a heart like yours you know that cares so much about animals you know might it be that the animals really need you and that it would be such a loss you know if you left um do you you know do you feel like you could make a difference there you know you might be the very person that might need to stick around and help Mm -hmm. so she nodded thoughtfully about this and sort of things went on and five years later, she sought me out. This is after she finished therapy, after you know a while. She sought me out and she came to visit. 
And she told me she wanted to let me know that that was the moment when she decided to leave. Mm. And, you know, she said, it was when you asked me if I wanted to be part of the problem or part of the solution. Mm. And you asked me if my heart might be leading me somewhere. Mm -hmm. And then I knew I really cared and I volunteered for an animal sanctuary and then I became a vegan baker and now I'm getting a college degree and I just want to thank you for raising that question, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's the kind of thing that can happen. Thank you, Jenny, for speaking with us today and so much food for thought and um, this has been very illuminating for me. I'm very grateful, Akancha, that you've engaged me in an interview on this very important area. It's truly been a pleasure and an honor to collaborate with you. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.